from the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm honored that you're joining us today. Whether you're in the western United States, where our guest happens to be, and you're having a cup of coffee, or you're in Europe, where I happen to be this week, and you're pouring a glass of wine, or if you're listening to the archive of the show, I'm sure glad you joined us today. I realized I now have some background noise I will have to solve here shortly. By the way, I'll wait about a half an hour or so for that glass of wine until after the show is finished. I don't want to miss the answers to many questions I have for our guest, and who knows, we might receive a question or two from you or one of our other listeners. Now, the advantage of joining us during the live show is you get to ask questions or make comments, either using the chat window below the radio player or by calling in. The call-in number is, in the United States, 917-388-4162 which you'll see at the top of the radio player. Now, if you're listening to the archive, I can assure you neither of those options will work. Now, digressing a bit from our main topic, when I moved back to the U.S. six years ago, I stored several cases of old wines from my wine cellar in Europe. Rather than shipping then, and I'm now kind of toward the end of that well-aged wine, That includes some white wines like American and Hungarian Chardonnays and Fumé Blanc, the French Chablis, all of which have aged wonderfully. Now, actually somewhere between wonderfully and fabulously, we've tried to consume the best with kind of notable uh, occasions like refinancing a property at a lower interest rate or meeting with friends or family or some particularly nice, nice weather, although any excuse will do just fine. Now, older wines, like many investments, are high risk and high reward. They may be vinegar, or they may be no better than they were after two or three years, or they may be truly excellent. The only challenge I've had so far is trying to get the aged corks out in fewer than 10 pieces. Now, occasionally, we've had no choice but to strain and decant those fine wines. I will admit it's nice to periodically indulge and enjoy these luxuries. Now, you might be wondering what this all has to do with our topic today, the affluent investor. It's obviously not directly related, but it is one of the luxuries that the wealthy and affluent investors can enjoy or look forward to enjoying, while the vast majority of people only read about it in wine magazines or watch it on some TV show or holiday mo- uh, Hollywood movie, excuse me. One of my sayings, money can't buy health or happiness, but neither does poverty. Feel free to quote me on that. Now, incidentally, there are times in my life where my family struggled financially, and there are times we've lived very comfortably and financially secure. Personally, having tested both, I prefer to be wealthy. Now, how about you? Would you rather be wealthy or struggling financially? Now, more importantly, who do you take financial advice from? Do you take it from, uh, let's say, your neighbors and your friends, some of whom may be struggling financially? 
or do you take it from people who are much wealthier than you? Personally, I take advice about improving my health from doctors, preferably, preferably those that are fit, trim, and practice what they teach. Now, if I want advice on which faucet to buy, I don't ask my auto mechanic. I ask my plumber. So when it comes to financial advice, my preference is you learn from those who are successful. Regular listeners of the Wealth DNA Radio Show know that our objective here is to help one million people become millionaires and certainly hope you'll be one of those millionaires or multimillionaires. Now, for the past several months, we've been doing a series on alternative investments, and today we're continuing that series from a slightly different angle. We have as our special guest Dr. Philip DeMuth, the author of a number of books, including one on alternative investments and his most recent book, The Affluent Investor. So if you've been wondering how we chose today's topic, you now know it's the title of his newest book. Now, if you don't know what we mean by alternative investments, you need to go back to our archive and check out the shows way back in April of 2012 and then the majority of shows since October of 2012. Now, the key reason we started this series was for you and the rest of our listeners. So many investors have been wondering what to do when the U.S. Federal Reserve and other governments stop printing trillions of dollars, new money, cause the stock market to stop, and more importantly, cause interest rates to rise. Now, if you ask why, you see, the purpose of that Fed's money printing has been to hold U.S. interest rates artificially low, which they feel will help stimulate the economy. The reality is clearly open to debate. But holding those rates down is like pushing a balloon underwater. When you stop pushing that balloon down, it will pop up, sometimes much faster than you were able to push it down. Our intent was and continues to be to provide you alternatives of what to invest your money when uh, bonds decrease in value and uncertainty returns to the equity markets. Now, if you missed those shows on alternative investments, you'll want to go back and listen to them on the archive. Of course, you can find that on www.wealthdna.us. Today is July 22, 2013. It is 9.06 in California and Arizona, 12.06 noon, basically right after noon, on the East Coast, and 18.06 in Continental now, it's the only day ever like it. We'll do everything possible to make it a good one. Now, if you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show, well, you are listening. <laughs> I'm, I'm your host, Ron Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss a show, you can hear it on the archives. Just go to www.wealthdna.us, where we live each one of the shows, both upcoming and archived. And there you'll find the shows on alternative investments I mentioned earlier. Now, we welcome your comments and questions during this show. We recommend you use the chat window below the radio player, especially since I am in Europe and we are having some sound problems from what I know. 
or if you can call in, you can try to call in, and I can't guarantee with the, with the sound problems we'll be able to do it, but uh, feel free to try calling in, and uh, we will do our best to uh, bring you on. That number is at the top of the screen. Screen It is 917-388-4162. And I'm just double-checking because I don't have the chat window up yet here in front of me, but I will. I believe it is up. We'll check that. The U.S. equity markets after four full weeks of being up are off to another positive start. Asia was mixed. Europe, which just closed, was mixed. And Brazil? That's a good question. Where is Brazil right now? I haven't checked today, but I'm assuming it is up as well. But let me just take a quick look, and I'll tell you where Brazil is on the... over 1%. Uh, so I, I, I that, wish I would have checked that earlier. Anyway, naturally, people who have no savings and thus no investments really could care less about the financial markets. There's more li- they're more likely to pay attention to the sports scores, the latest celebrity scandals, and maybe the unemployment rate. How about the athletes? they pay attention to the financial markets? I presume they do even if not on a daily basis. But let's not presume we have one of the experts on how the affluent think and invest. See, our special guest today is Dr. Philip DeMuth, the Managing Director of Conservative Wealth Management, LLC, the author of a number of books, including his newest, The Affluent Investor. He graduated at the top of his class, has a Master's in Communications and a Ph.D. in Clinical psychology. Philip DeMuth is a registered investment advisor, and the company he runs caters to the affluent investor. He's the author and co-author of a number of investment books, and I'm certainly excited to have him on our show today. Let's give a warm radio welcome to Philip DeMuth. Welcome, Philip. I'm glad you could join us today. Ron, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, and hopefully you'll be able to hear me well enough as we go through the show. I know we're not having a delay, but we are having my voice fading, so my apologies for that. Uh, Now, I introduced you a little bit, a little brief overview of your background. How do you introduce yourself, let's say you're at a cocktail party? You know, we're advised to have a cocktail party pitch where we describe ourselves in some stunning terms that immediately make people get out their checkbook. But I've never been able to do that. Uh, I just say that I'm a a guy who invests money for people, I'm an investment advisor, and I also do some writing about investing. I guess I I take the low-key pitch approach. Boy, I guess that is, given your background. First background, by the way, master's in communication, then a Ph.D. in clinical psychology, as well as a registered investment advisor. So you're both a psychologist and a registered investment advisor, as I understand. Now, do you use both of them, and does the psychology background help you with your investment advisory? It helped me hugely, but not in a way that you might uh, expect. Out of all the courses that I took in psychology – The ones that have really paid off as an investment advisor were the ones in statistics. Because as I uh, developed my interest in the stock market, that meant that I entered the stock market door not through the Wall Street marketing side, which is all about, you know, the next stock that's about to pop 
and all this kind of nonsense. But instead, I entered it through the data side, where I would find data series on performance of uh, stocks, bonds, historical series, analyze them, try to figure out what worked, what didn't work. So the research orientation was actually the most helpful, not the touchy-feely side. And that spared me a world of pain because I, I didn't enter as a, you know, the marketing door. I entered through the door of, you know, trying to understand a little bit about how financial markets work, how risk and reward are related, and what are the, the prudent uh, kinds of uh, ways of approaching the problem. That was enormously helpful. I suppose also it's a little bit helpful just in terms of being able to listen to clients and, you know, hear what they're really trying to say behind the facade because money is a terrifying topic. Money is like an ultimate uh, kind of bedrock to our lives, and people dance around it. Uh, they certainly want to avoid confronting it uh, as long as possible, but ultimately I think it's very healing when people do take a kind of sober inventory of their financial situations. So in, the, in that respect, I think even the touchy-feely side has been of some help. Excellent. Excellent. Now, you're the Managing Director of Conservative Wealth Management. Tell us a little bit about the company. Are you fee-based or are you commission-based? I opened Conservative Wealth Management in 2003 when Ben Stein and I first started writing books together. I was already an investment advisor just managing my own account, and I realized that it was going to take very little extra work to bring other clients along on the same investment journey that I was on. So I opened a, a, a website, opened up my own little uh, business, uh, hung out a shingle, as it were. And uh, so the company is uh, definitely a, a fee-based, and I just try to take people along on the same path that I was going myself. Very interesting. Use the word investment journey. I like that. It's not a destination. It definitely is a journey. <laughs> definitely. Now, before we dig in, we need to share with our listeners how they find out more information about Dr. Phil DeMuth, uh, who should not, by the way, be confused with Dr. Phil, that TV psychologist. What uh, <laughs> website contact information would you recommend? Well, I think uh, my website, www.phildemuth.com, is a uh, good place to start. The website itself is an homage to the Berkshire Hathaway website in terms of extreme frugality and simplicity, but it has a lot of information there. And then also, I think another good path is just to go to Amazon and uh, look at the books. Uh, there are, I think, eight of them on investing. And uh, most people uh, that know my work found me through uh, the writings. I'm, oh, and I'm also I'm, I'm writing a, a column for Forbes.com now, so that comes out every week. So that's that's another way you can get to see what I'm thinking about these days. All right, and I'll just remind him it's www.phildemuth.com, and the spelling, P-H-I-L-D-E-M-U-T-H, is up uh, under above, well, I guess it would be under the radio player, so you can also see the spelling there if you're not sure. Now, great. Now, some of our listeners are these multitaskers. They can listen and they can review other stuff, so <laughs> I give them a chance to see your, um, I, I like that, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a uh, subtle approach to a website where you have links, you don't do a lot of uh, flashy stuff on the first page to 
bother my eyes, uh, and I can take a look at those things of interest. So uh, it's definitely worth their taking a look. Now, I assume uh, when you started that business, uh, you somehow defined who your clients going to be, and how do you define who would be uh, affluent and be best to uh, take advantage of your services? Well, the financial services industry generally defines an affluent investor as somebody who has over $100,000 in liquid financial assets. So in other words, excluding the value of your house and the value of your career and so forth. This is how much money you've got, you know, salted away at Schwab or TD Ameritrade or Fidelity or someplace that's available for uh, investment. And then they would further subdivide that into what's called the mass affluent, which is people that have between about $100,000 and a million, and the high net worth investor, and these are people that have, you know, say a million to 10 million or a million to 25 million, something in that range. So that, that's how the, uh, the financial services industry carves up the pie. And I generally specialize in helping the high net worth uh, because it's just, uh, I, I suppose it's the uh, region that I uh, inhabit, it's the one that I know the best, it's the one that all my clients live in, so I'm aware of their uh, issues, problems, concerns. It's sort of the, the the bread and butter of my practice, as it were. And you've got a, a pretty good uh, address for uh, for that type of investor as well on Mulholland Drive, uh, a well-known <laughs> address. So uh, I think that helps a little bit. Now, do you work with some family offices as well, which tend to be used by the wealthiest, those ultra-high net worth uh, individuals? You know, that's a great question. I am not a big fan of family offices, to tell you the truth. I know that there are some cases where they do a great job, but for the most part, I think that family offices charge too much money and uh, deliver subpar performance. I was recently at a conference uh, for people that had an average of over $100 million. And as I looked around, what I realized is that these people, in many cases, would actually be better off financially if they didn't turn their fortunes over to a family office to manage. You know, they're, they're thinking that, gee, my family office is going to be like the Yale Endowment because I'm so incredibly rich, I can get in all these great uh, deals and I'll do super well. But actually, they're not like the Yale Endowment. The Yale Endowment has got billions of dollars. So they get in first. They get in all the best deals. A family office that's going to be you know, carving out a few million dollars into a bunch of different strategies really isn't enough to be a player. So most of these folks would actually be better off if they would just ship their money off to a few index funds and invest alongside with, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack uh, and, the, and the rest of America. So I appreciate what they're trying to do. I understand they're labor-saving devices, but I think in many cases it's a, uh, it's a sub-optimal uh, solution for very wealthy people. Okay, so it gives them the, the ultimate in personal attention, uh, but on the other hand, it may not be the best from a financial perspective. Uh, I guess it's good for the ego, too. You're right. Uh, it, it's fun to talk about, but I think they pay a very high price for it. What you get into there is what's, what are called agency problems. 
In other words, if I'm running a family office, if, I, if somebody just hires me to run it, well, ostensibly I'm trying to run it. Ostensibly, I'm trying to run it for the benefit of the family. I'm also human nature being what it is. I'm going to set it up to run it so it mostly benefits me. So I'm going to have uh, very cozy relationships with all the people that are trying to sell things to the family. You know, if they're Super Bowl tickets, I'll be happy to accept them. If they're you know, golf outings or pheasant hunts uh, offered by the local banking department, well, I'll be sure to be present at all of these uh, events to help schmooze and socialize. So basically, I'm going to set up a very cozy situation for myself uh, and probably at the family's expense, ultimately. These, these kinds of problems are unavoidable to some extent, unless you've just got Gandhi running the family office. So it, it's a tough problem. Hey, while we're on that topic, tell us a little bit about your investment philosophy or your overall strategy or overall approach to investing. Well, again, because I came at it looking at the data, I was interested to learn that historically there have been a few investment approaches that have tended to have better outcomes than simply just buying and holding the whole stock market, which anybody can do by buying a, a simple index fund at very low expense, which I think is a great way to go for many people. But can one do more than this? I suppose my business is predicated on the view that you can. So I've noticed that over long periods of time, if one buys smaller companies, if one buys what are called value stocks, if one buys high-quality companies, if one buys companies that have momentum behind them, uh, you can actually get a higher expected return than just buying the market as a whole. And there are, there are mutual funds that have been set up by different companies to exactly capture these market uh, anomalies or market, special market risk factors. So I've been very interested in that part. I've also been interested to see that very, what are called very low volatility stocks, low beta stocks, as it were, have also delivered investment returns on a par with the market as a whole, but with considerably less volatility along the way. So I simply try to concoct portfolios that combine all of these different uh, factors, all of these different sources of, of outsized returns relative to their volatility, and uh, put, put them all together in one portfolio and uh, let it run. Okay. Now, you've written, and I mentioned it uh, earlier, you've written a, or co-authored a number of books. Uh, most of it, most of them appear to be, or at least uh, as your recent book, has a foreword from uh, Ben Stein. Uh, I'm familiar with, I think, five of them. Could you mention for our listeners, uh, maybe in sequential order, which ones you've been involved in, just so it kind of gives us an evolution of, of when those were written up to your most current? Sure. The first book, 2003, was a, a book that I wrote with Ben called, Yes, You Can Time the Market. And it's not really a book about market timing so much as it is about market valuation, with a view that if you can value the market, you can figure out better times to invest and less good times to invest. And this was written sort of on the heels of the, uh, of the uh, tech uh, uh, crash, where we saw that uh, valuations got way out of hand and therefore it turned out to be a very bad time to invest, as we saw. So that was the first. 
Then we wrote a book on financial planning, just basic financial planning, called Yes, You Can Get a Financial Life. That was followed, uh, another book with Ben, uh, called Yes, You Can Still Retire Comfortably, a book on planning for retirement, how to draw down investment portfolios over time, things like that. And then along uh, similar themes, we wrote a book called Yes, You Can Be a Successful Income Investor, How to Find Good uh, Income Securities. Then we wrote a book on uh, modern portfolio theory, modern portfolio theory, Monte Carlo simulations, and this was called Yes, You Can Supercharge Your Portfolio. Oh, okay, that one I was... Keep going? Sure. Yeah, let's, let's cover just a couple more, but yeah, I, I boy, it's it's the Yes series. I guess, I, again, you don't list all of those on your website, that's for sure, and I have not run into all of them yet, so I, I'm going to have some reading to do in the next uh, six months. The uh, I guess it's the first one uh, sold well. They just uh, they kept going with the Yes uh, in the title because uh, it, was, it was good for marketing. But we broke away from it. We were asked to write uh, a book for the uh, Wiley's Little Investment Book series, and we actually ended up writing two of them. We wrote a book uh, about uh, the Little Book of Bulletproof Investing, and then we wrote the Little Book of Alternative Investments, which you mentioned. And then finally, I just, I just broke out on my own to write uh, The Affluent Investor, which is really more a book written. It's, it's a little more specialized. It's written for my uh, clients. People were mostly in the uh, high net worth category. Understand? Excellent, excellent. No, that's uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, those two—the little book of alternative investments and the one on uh, the Athlone investor—the two I'd love to focus on. If that's okay with you today, that'd be great. Okay, and maybe if we're nice to you, you'll agree to come back and you'll share some more about some of the other books. I mean, we'll have it the uh, the Yes Show. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. We'll need it in three parts. Uh, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of information to cover. But let me remind our tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. If you miss some of the prior shows, like the ones we did on alternative investments, or you want to re-listen, we maintain an archive on www.wealthdna.us. And you can also get a reminder of the show by sending an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. And I am not seeing our chat window. Our producer, in, in, in his haste, he had another meeting. Looks like he did not turn that on, so we won't be able to take chat messages today. Although I got so many questions, I don't know how we'd fit them in. Uh, so my apologies to the to the live audience. Uh, but uh, if you do call, uh, we get have an urgent question. Of course, you'll you'll let me know after after well after the show. Now our topic today with uh, Dr. Phil Demuth, the uh, is the affluent investor that's his most recent book and he is the managing director of conservative wealth management and an author of many other books on investing so we were just talking about the various books he covered and we decided uh, that we'd, we'd cover the, the little book on alternative investments as well as the most recent the affluent investor uh, now on that uh, book the little book of um, alternative investments you're listed with, uh, I think is listed as Ben Stein as the primary author, you as, as uh, the second. Now, between you and I, and I won't tell anybody, uh, is it really Phil DeMuth who did most of the heavy list lifting and Ben Stein brought the notoriety that helps sell the books? <laughs> well, I can see why you would say that. 
because whenever Ben goes on TV to talk about it, he always says, oh, Phil is the one who writes these books. Phil does all the work. Well, mm-hmm. I do most of the typing. I'll, I'll give myself that much. But Ben is very involved. He's very involved in the, the whole premise behind the books, outlining the books, what we're going to cover here, 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 here. He reads them, you know, every word, edits every word. So I'm afraid, as uh, much as I'd like to take credit for them, I'm afraid they're very much joint efforts. Well, that's good to hear. That's good. Now, part of that full title of that book includes the words daring to be different. What do you mean by that? Uh, Again, a a marketing phrase, but uh, I think what you look for in an alternative investment is something that is going to have returns that are not correlated with everything else you already own, that aren't correlated with the stock market above all, and, and secondarily aren't correlated with the bond market. So most people, most investors at least, are comfortable buying stocks and bonds. But then once you move out of that very well-defined territory, uh, it's, things start to get a little bit hairy. We don't quite know what these all these different uh, structures are out there and uh, if they're going to just blow up in our face like an exploding cigar. So it does require a daring to look outside the uh, the normal path and try to find uh, find alternatives, as it were. Okay, fair enough. Now, I did not, and this is full disclosure, not able to pick up a copy uh, while I was in Europe. Uh, I will be getting one later. But with that, uh, on this show, on the on the series we've had, we've covered real estate, gold, hedge funds, angel and venture capital, and we'll be talking about several more, including uh, forex trading and uh, commodities. But uh, what were some of the alternative investments that you covered in that book? Well, I must say, apropos of your introduction, that one of the best pieces of advice I ever got about alternative investments was happened in 1982. I walked into Sherry Lehman, a wine store in New York, and I wanted to buy some Bordeaux futures, French wine. And the salesman said, Phil, here I've got, I can order you a case if Chateau Petrus, uh, which is the premier French Bordeaux wine, for $600 a case. And I said, he said, you ought to buy this. You'll be able to put your kids through college on it if you buy it. And I just, I just laughed at him. Well, he was right. That $600 case of wine was selling for $20,000 a few years later. But I, di- wow. I didn't listen. And, and I don't talk about Chateau Petrus in this book particularly. What I do talk about, we, we sort of make a quick survey through the, uh, the categories that you mentioned, you know, collectibles, gold, Uh, things like that. Uh, But most of the book uh, talks about, and this is really the reason for writing about it, the fact that hedge fund strategies, once the province of only the rich, uh, were suddenly being packaged and made available for ordinary retail investors by being funneled into what are called 40 Act, which is to say, you know, regulated by the SEC, ordinary mutual funds. And this was a whole new development that had come about, and we thought it would be good to kind of just survey the field, take a look at some of these funds, see what they're uh, about, what they're trying to do, how they're trying to to do it, and kind of just uh, kick the tires, realizing that these were 
uh, very early innings and just uh, just seeing what was out there that an ordinary investor might uh, be interested in that would have returns that were different from those of uh, stocks and bonds. Okay, very good. And well, especially when it's in the part of the little book series, you cannot cover the universe of what we've done, probably 10 or 15 hours of uh, radio shows. You couldn't possibly cover all of that in one of those small books. So right. uh, understandably, you had to focus it some. So I guess that leaves room. If they haven't done them, you could now do the little book of gold or angel venture capital or, or whatever. So there's still you bet. You bet. Some more. <laughs> Uh, now, which do you tend to use of the alternative investments when you're investing, uh, you know, your clients or your own money? Sure. Well, all my clients would have some exposure to commodities. Not a huge exposure, but if they would have a couple percentage points in a broad index of commodities. Not gold in particular, but just the waterfront. Although some of them do uh, for you know personal reasons, might have a separate allocation to gold. All my clients would have exposure to real estate, real estate investment trusts uh, on a global basis. And all of my clients would have exposure to some hedge fund uh, strategies that have been, as I say, uh, packaged into uh, packaged into these mutual funds where you've got more transparency and liquidity than you do when, you, when your money is tied up, you know, a million dollars at a pop in some hedge fund where you can't get it out unless you write a polite letter a, a quarter to an advance saying that you want your money back. These, these are funds that you can get your money back the next day if you want to click a mouse. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Very good. And, uh, we had you, you happen to mention the endowments. We had Matthew Tuttle, the author of uh, How Harvard and uh, Yale Beat the Market, on the show. He was on several months ago. Now, if I totally oversimplify his uh, key message, and, and and that would be especially taking that long of a discussion down to, to two seconds here, uh, would be that the big endowment funds, yes, have done extremely well and can, but most people will not be able to invest in some of those same financial instruments. How do you comment on that oversimplification? I mean, how would you respond to that statement if if if, uh, if I make it? Uh, I, it's exactly correct. I completely agree with that. The uh, again, the endowments. If you're Harvard, you have literally uh, billions of dollars to invest. As Ben put it once in one of his columns for the New York Times, he Ben went to Yale. And he's asked, you know, every year to contribute to Yale University, you know, write a check to the Alumni Association and so forth. And he responded that, wait a minute, Yale is so big, its endowment fund is so big, that you might more accurately say that Yale University is a hedge fund, and it has a small little school that it operates as a kind of nonprofit on the side. If you look at the financial scope of it, that's what it is. And so it's, this is, I suppose, the way of justifying. I think he sends in the money anyway because he can't resist. But uh, that you know, getting $1,000 from an alumni is not really <laughs> very meaningful in the context of this you know, multi-billion dollar hedge fund that is actually Yale University. 
Excellent. Interesting perspective on that. And, you know, the, I think one of the key messages I've mentioned throughout our series, uh, leveraging that a little bit, is that, yes, they do extremely well, but part of it is because they do include those alternative investments just as you do for your clients. You don't stick with just stocks and bonds and hope for the best, uh, especially after uh, the 35-year, uh, you know, big bubble that we've created in the bond market that, that right. will eventually collapse hasn't already started. So uh, from that standpoint, you know, the, they, they put a lot in alternative investments, uh, investments and it's like your your point, they're almost a hedge fund in themselves. Good way, good way to view it. Now, in your view on, on the use of these low-cost index funds, uh, you know, what percentage do you actually have of your clients or your own money in these alternative investments? As you mentioned, commodities is going to be a first small piece. But if you took the total of those alternative investments, what might that come out to be? And I guess there's second part to that is if a client's portfolio is $50 million instead of $1 million, will that percentage be higher for that larger portfolio? Wow, what a, what a great question. Typically, I would look at how, how much money does the client have in, invested in risky assets. And of that, I would probably have 15 to 20% in alternatives. So it, it comes out about that much. Um, as clients have more money, it could be a higher amount. Although, I would, I would also say that it, people, again, tend to think of these investments, these alternatives, as being places where you're it's like going to Las Vegas and uh, you're at the roulette wheel and you're spinning it and it's very high risk and very high return. It's not like that at all. In fact, most of the alternatives have returns that are lower than the stock market. They tend to fall somewhere between the stock and the bond market. And so uh, they're not vehicles for getting rich directly. They're more vehicles for controlling risk. Because the, the reason that Yale and Harvard and all these places went into alternatives is because they realized that if they could find investments that didn't correlate with the stock market and the bond market, that we're, we're going to zig when the others zagged, but overall, their portfolio would have a steady, smoother ride upward. And that's pretty much how it's worked out for them. Uh, and it's what modern portfolio theory says ought to happen. So the more different kinds of things you can put in your portfolio, overall, the volatility of each one will uh, cancel out with the others, and you'll have a steadier trajectory. And that's really what we're looking for here. Mm-hmm. Now, as an investor, no, it doesn't matter if we're just in the stock and bond market or we're using a lot of different alternative investments. Uh, the key decision is what to invest in and, and maybe when to invest in it, when not to invest in it. Uh, just as importantly, how do you approach that decision process? Do you change that portfolio fairly significantly after, again, I mean, I'm going to use my example of 35-year uh, bond market you know, heading up and up and up, and, and unless we have negative interest rates, it can't keep going. Uh, you know, how does that change the portfolio? How do you how do you make those decisions? Well, exactly. I, my personal view, and reasonable men and women may disagree on this, is that I would decide a sort of baseline asset allocation that makes sense for an individual. But then I would vary it tactically at the margins, depending on my view of the valuation of all the different component asset classes in it. So, for instance, if I look at bonds 
and see that they are at historical, extremely ex- expensive, I would uh, I would cut back on the allocation to bonds, and I would buy more of other things. But I'm doing that not just with bonds, but really with all asset classes. I'm, you know, U.S. stocks, foreign stocks, emerging market stocks, commodities, real estate. I'm sort of trying to keep track of all of these things and keep a you know some kind of um, uh, relative valuation uh, to all of them based on how cheap or how expensive they look. So, so I, I try to factor try try to factor that in. Okay, and I, that gives me obviously a good hint to one that you talked about the valuation uh, in, in one of your books. That sounds like one I should pick up next after the alternative investments. Just just based on that comment. Now, I'd better move to your newest book, The Affluent Investor. Would it be a fair statement to say that? Uh, oops, I'm getting a sort of message on my phone here. You have. Okay, I should be okay. Um, but anyway, we're. Uh, yeah, we should move on to the affluent investor because uh, you know, time flies, and I'm having such a good time that I'll forget. But uh, is it fair to say, and as I did it early in the show, that it's better to take advice, financial advice, from somebody affluent or wealthy than from somebody who struggles financially? Yes. Again, this is a, this is a real problem. Uh, you know, Benjamin Graham, the famous value investor, said that a person really shouldn't try to do this on their own unless they are competent enough to to do it for other people. In other words, you shouldn't really be uh, investing your own portfolio unless you're good enough so that you would hang out a shingle and do it professionally. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to trip yourself up. You're going to get uh, emotional. You're going to buy when things are high. You're going to sell when there's a crash at the bottom. And you do that a few times, and you basically just erased a lifetime of uh, earning. So it's a it's a terrible it's a terrible problem, and it, and it ties into the psychology of it, because people tend to be very overconfident. They tend to think, oh, well, you know, I'm like James Bond. I can just walk up to the uh, investing table at Wall Street and uh, spin the wheel, and I'm going to make a lot of money. And of course, they want you to think that. They want to buy you a drink and have you sit down at the table. But it's a bad idea. Uh, you're, you're better off uh, being professionally managed in most cases. And I say that knowing that many investment professionals do a terrible job, but they do a less terrible job than individual investors do on their own. That's just the way it is, unfortunately. I'm sorry, I'm not hearing you. Still not hearing you.
Hello. Hi. I'm back. Can you oh, hear great. Me okay? Oh, boy, boy. Dude, I, I, anyway, my line just dropped. It took me a little while to figure out what's going on here technically. My total apologies on no that. No problem. Let me let me ask you one key question. You you've worked with Athlone investors. You researched them. Uh, I've talked about Thomas Stanley's Dr. Thomas Stanley's books, The uh, Millionaire Next Door and The Millionaire Mind. Uh, you know he has some you know great statements, and I assume you've read them. What you know? Would you agree with what he says? Absolutely crucial what he says. Uh, here is a simple fact of life, and that is that if you spend every dollar you earn, you will never be wealthy. Sooner or later, something's going to trip you up and you're going to find yourself in a negative cash flow situation. So the key to becoming wealthy, as uh, his work show, are that you have to live within your means and thereafter you have to learn to invest in a uh, sensible, intelligent, and above all, cost-effective way. Very, very much so. I think people forget that it's not just the, uh, you know, what you invest in. It's making sure you have the money to invest. Uh, now, one of his findings that most people, most wealthy people rely on investment advisors. You had a statement in your book that really kind of made that point. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to quote you here. Naturally, there is a price to self-management as well. For one thing, your advisor might be an idiot. Yes, I mean you. <laughs> No, it's true. The uh, the returns uh, that most people get investing on their own are so – when you look at the research on it, they're so terrible that for the most part, people would be almost as, as well off just you know putting their money in a hole in a tree in the backyard. Uh, just because, again, their whole, uh, their whole psychology is wrong. They feel confident when they should be scared, and they feel scared when they should be – boldly marching forward. So the human animal is just designed in such a way as to just keep making the same mistakes over and over again, and they, they, become, uh, they become very costly. Like jumping into the stock market when it's hitting new peaks. Exactly, exactly. What are some of the key differences between that affluent investor and Joe Sixpack uh, in their approach to money and savings? Let me start with those two pieces first. Well, I, I think the typical affluent investor is somebody who has – he got that way, she got that way by having uh, a high degree, first of all, of human capital. They typically have advanced education or advanced skills. Then they've learned to work extremely hard, uh, honing these skills uh, in some area where they have an edge that maybe other people don't have. You know, They're a doctor, lawyer, something like that. And then they've been they've been saving the money and they've been investing the money, and I think ideally, uh, in most cases, uh, the best way to proceed is to simply you know especially if you don't have when you when you're starting out and don't have enough money to use a financial advisor is to simply just use index funds, go use exchange traded funds or buy an S and P 500 index fund from Vanguard something like that. And uh, it's a very sensible, low-cost approach, and it will allow your money to build quickly. Now, at the other end, I noticed that very high net worth people, you know, the ultra-rich, I was just reading a, a survey about how they 
they suddenly are feeling uh, more confident about the stock market and are investing even more today. But that's a good example of bad advice I think they've gotten because the, the time to really be investing more was five years ago. We're now in five years into a bull market, and now is not the time to pot all the stops and go for broke. It was back then. So, again, this is uh, how, in some cases, I think the very rich people can be punished by getting advice that's been uh, generally too conservative. Okay. Now, how do some of the differences we talk about, uh, you know, the investing side, but also the, the asset protection and taxes, which are kind of non-issues for uh, most, uh, you know, kind of the average uh, person, uh, you know, how do how do the wealthy or the the affluent approach those topics? Well, big questions. I mean, the affluent investors tend to be uh, perhaps more careful about how their accounts are registered, how they're titled. Uh, they try to uh, combine a certain amount of tax planning, estate planning, so that the accounts are set up in such a way that the uh, uh, the government is going to have a smaller share in the spoils. They also try to manage the asset location so that the more intensive, the more tax intensive assets are parked in accounts that are uh, where they're tax deferred or tax exempt. They also tend to be very careful about realizing capital gains, and this is becoming more important all the time as capital gains taxes have been rising, 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 and will probably rise even more. So we have to be very judicious when it comes to rebalancing portfolios so we're not needlessly just handing money over to Uncle Sam at every turn. Okay, so they, they definitely think about it. But, you know, some of those things are just logical anyway. And putting something like uh, uh, munis into a uh, IRA is just kind of a dumb thing to do. And I see, you know, people doing that, just figuring, oh, well, you know, this way I'll, it won't be taxable. It'll be taxable. That way it really won't be taxed. It'll be doubly taxed. <laughs> But it's taxable again. So, you know, it's, 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 uh, what you're saying is they become more astute about the things that make really a big difference. They start learning some of the things that uh, all investors should really be doing. Right. And it, it, as people become wealthier, you know, they tend to start having more interactions with uh, tax attorneys, accountants, estate attorneys, as well as just conversations with their pals, or, you know, around the golf course or whatever, they tend to wise each other up in a way that uh, people who are not uh, as affluent, they tend to have, a, it tends to be a slower road to uh, get smarter about all these things. Gotcha. And uh, let me remind uh, listeners that just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and especially if you tuned in right when we had a gap, my line uh, dropped. I am in Europe, and uh, my apologies for that to both uh, you as a listener and to our guest. Now, if you missed earlier parts of the show, listen to the earlier portion on the archive at, on WealthDNA.us. Now, today our guest, Bill DeMuth, Pension Director of Wealth Management, the author of a number of books on investing, and we're discussing his newest book, The Affluent Investor. And, Phil, I'm hoping you'll be able to stay with us a few minutes longer to make up for the gap and the lost time we have in there. No problem. Happy to. Excellent. You know, I just It's just one of those things that uh, I guess I for, should foresee when I'm over here happening, but uh, somehow it does. Anyway, in your book, you talked about custom tailoring the asset allocation to, to, to match that personal life. And I think you touched on that, but tell us a little bit more what you mean on that, about that. Is it the 
looking at some of the other risky things they have or is it looking at their personality? And I think here of your psychology background, you know, what do you mean when you say uh, tailoring it to, to that individual uh, need? Well, this really came to the forefront in 2008 where we had a situation where people were uh, finding that their 401k plans were suddenly plummeting in value, and their stock portfolios uh, were plummeting in value. And then they found that their spouse suddenly got laid off, and then the, the value of their house fell 50%, and suddenly they look around and see, oh my gosh, my own job is, I'm kind of hanging on by my fingernails around here. So what you want to avoid is a situation where everything starts circling the drain at the same time. And th that's the kind of thing you have to take into account in designing a person's uh, investment portfolio. So people's jobs especially vary widely in terms of how exposed they are to the risks of the stock market. Speaking personally, I'm an investment advisor. My right. job is very highly tied to the performance of the stock market. When stocks are up, I'm a genius. People love me. When stocks are down, I'm a bum. Throw the guy out. So my own investments ought to be not as highly concentrated in the stock market because my whole career is tied to the stock market. I should be investing more in alternatives and other kinds of things. Whereas a person who's, let's say you're a, a tenured professor at a university, well, you've got complete job security, and it doesn't matter whether you know the stock market goes up or down. You're, you're going to still be showing up for work. Nobody's going to be firing you. So a person like that can afford to take a lot of risk of the stock market because he's got his career to bank on no matter how the stock market does. So the, the point is, for many people, their career is the most valuable asset they own. So we need to take that into account along with everything else in their portfolio and have it so the whole thing fits together and not just as a sidecar. That's an excellent way to look at it. I'm glad I asked that question. That really helped us. I, I, I tend to think of more of the personality, of, you know, is the person risk averse and those kinds of things, but those, that's an excellent point. Now, you've probably met and, and, and followed and, and, you know, gained a lot, been inspired by some really great people. Are there some specific ones that really kind of stand out as those that inspired you and your philosophy? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my whole life changed uh, back in the 90s when I walked into a bookstore and for some reason my hand was guided to pick out a book by John Bogle, uh, who was the head of Vanguard at the time. And it was a book, I think, Bogle on Mutual Funds. I was just a, a psychologist. I read the whole book. I did not understand a single word. I read it about six times until I did understand every word, and it, was, it had changed my life. I suddenly saw the value of uh, uh, controlling costs, of being very broadly diversified, of simply indexing many asset classes. And uh, so that was a big life-changing event. And then subsequently, uh, the, the people that I look up to the most, including uh, John Bogle, would be people like Warren Buffett, who was just a, a genius uh, investor and a genius about many, many things. And to tell you the truth, I'm especially partial 
to uh, Warren's sidekick, uh, Charlie Munger, the, the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, who's uh, just, oh, it, uh, as a friend of mine put it, with with many investors, you can just you study their work and you find one or two things that you want to take with you as lessons. But with Charlie Munger, you can just look at his whole life, cut and paste the whole thing onto your life, and you'll be better off for it. He's just a very, very uh, wise man. So I, I look for opportunities to uh, learn from him every chance I get. Okay, and I guess you can't ignore Ben Stein in that list. But that oh, and, and well, of course, meeting Ben Stein, this, this is, again, personally, was a transformation. I mean, we were just having lunch together. We would uh, talk about the stock market. And then Ben suddenly said, this conversation is publishable. We can write a book about this. And I said, huh? And uh, he sends an email, and suddenly we have a book contract in our hands. So Ben, ben has been extremely – every time I have lunch with Ben, which I do frequently – I feel like I'm at a graduate school seminar. I've just learned so much from him. It just cannot be uh, quantified. Hmm. Now, back in the early 80s, I'll admit, I got a chance to meet John Bogle. We both, I was living in the Philadelphia area, and, of course, they're headquartered there. Uh, we happened to be on a flight together from Chicago, and he was just surprised I recognized him. This was back in, like, 82. Uh, wow. Or Free. Uh, and of course, Vanguard was still pretty small. I just happened to be one of his investors. My retirement funds with with, with Vanguard. So he was just shocked. Uh, we had a great chat, and uh, you know, one heck one heck of a guy. And, and he, you know, he still there's the Bogle heads and whatever else that that follow his his philosophy. And obviously, I guess you would qualify as as a uh, uh, you know a, a qualified member of uh, those that that follow his uh, his style. So absolutely, uh, absolutely. You know, what I'm hoping is that there's two future books I'm working on, Ten Commandments in Investing and the uh, Wealth DNA uh, will be a book, and I'm hoping those eventually become part of your inspiration as well. For uh, I can't uh, wait for, to read them. Okay, well, I, I just wish I could get a little more time to put into them. That's all I can say. We're, we're a good way along on the Ten Commandments, but I just, you know, it's just a matter of finding all of the time to do it. Sure. You the phrase um, in your book, and, and, and I, yeah, I think I understand, but I want to get your meaning. Wall Street's wealth extraction machine. What do you mean when you said that? Well, it's unfortunate but true. When you go to a city like New York or London and you see all these fancy buildings and these extremely well-dressed people eating you know, $400 lunches, you think about, gee, where did they get all their money? And then you realize, wait a minute, uh, they're financial services. They get their money from me as, as, a, uh, as a client. So I am painfully aware of how much Wall Street strategy is just designed to, uh, in the name of uh, you know, making lots of money for you, it's really about making lots of money for them. And it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't happen because they come in and steal it. It just happens because they're extracting 1%, 2%, 3% from your portfolio in various ways year after year after year. And what happens over time is that they end up with more of your money than you did. So uh, it's, it's a very uh, – it's a big problem. Uh, they, the whole idea is to keep uh, – 
the financial services industry uh, to make it as uh, mystifying as possible so that you're constantly in need of their hand-holding, uh, their administrations. And, but it's not a good deal for most people. Most people are better advised to have as little to do with Wall Street as they can, which is why you suddenly find yourself in the camp with John Bogle and the Bogleheads, because the one thing you can reliably control is costs. So if you can control your costs, you're going to end up uh, ahead. That can be a very significant edge for a person to have. Okay, interesting. That's actually one of our inspirations for this series, Alternative Investments, to kind of uh, also diversify beyond Wall Street, if you will, or beyond Frankfurt or, or the uh, Paris Bourse or anywhere else. I mean, we're not going to be partial to just Wall Street. This is true of all of the uh, – uh, it's worse in Wall Street than, than it is in the other uh, uh, other stock exchanges. I'll admit you don't see quite as much uh, excess in big bonuses uh, as we see in the U.S. Sure. You had some great comments and quotes in your book, and one I want to kind of ask you about, because I, this is just one that never hit me before. In investing, ignorance is not bliss, it's disaster. Now, was there a real-world experience uh, or, or client experience or your own that inspired that uh, that comment? Uh, I'm aware of that every day of my life. I mean, I spend my whole life reading about investing, studying and managing it for other people. And I'm astonished at how much I don't know, how much I still have to learn, how much I wish I'd known sooner. And if that's the case for me, who does it full-time, it must really be the case for a lot of people who don't do it full-time. Uh, you just cannot know enough about it. And again, I think it, it ties in with a tendency psychologically for people to live in denial, for people to just put it off, not worry about it, change the channel, watch watch TV instead, uh, go to the sports bar. It's There's a million things that are more fun to do than to worry about money. But the sooner that you can bring this to the front and center, the, the, the sooner you can confront it, the happier you will be and the sooner you will be in a position of financial security. Okay. And so learning is an important piece of being a successful investor. No oh, absolutely. Point. Yes. Absolutely. Now, some of uh, my uh, you know, kind of key warnings to our listeners has been about inflation and the eventual collapse of that bond bubble. Uh, and that's, again, why we, we focused on these alternative investments for a number of shows. I'd like to get your thoughts on three of my favorites. I mentioned them on this show uh, periodically. One is real estate, another, really a subset of real estate, which are private mortgage loans, and uh, especially for generating income as an alternative to bonds, and gold. What are mm -hmm. your thoughts? Okay. Uh, private mortgage loans don't know anything about it. Uh, okay. Gold, gold is, a, is a tough one. On the one hand, it is not an earning asset. Uh, so there is no particular reason other than people's, other people's faith in it to believe in it. On the other hand, it, you cannot deny that at times, especially of political uh, instability, uh, in times of crisis, gold is often an asset class that performs very well. So I see gold really as kind of an, what you might say is an insurance policy. It's an insurance policy. It's not uh, necessarily going to work. I suppose no insurance policy ultimately is going to guaranteeably work because there, there might be times when it doesn't, uh, doesn't pay off. 
But for the most part, in, in times of severe economic distress, gold has tended to do pretty well. I think lately people have been spoiled by gold because it's been going up and up and up until uh, until this year at least. And so people expected, well, I have this insurance policy, plus it just goes up all the time. But that's not really how insurance works. For the most part, you have to pay to have insurance. So I would uh, – I think the more realistic view is that I'm not going to really – I'm going to buy gold, and I'm not really going to expect it to go up, but I am going to uh, expect it to go up if we get into a period of really big trouble, and then I'm going to look for it to be a friend in time of need. But other than that, I'm not going to really pay a lot of attention. Is it, you know, is it up 3% this quarter or down 3%? That, 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 if you're thinking about that, you shouldn't be buying gold in the first place. You, you bought it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, no, I think the insurance analogy is a good one. How about real estate? You did mention you have, uh, especially in, in, in global REITs, uh, or at least globally uh, focused uh, Oh, yes. Well, a, a, a wonderful asset class. Love it. Every, everybody's got it. And, of course, uh, I, I think that uh, people generally are better off owning their home if they can, uh, can afford to do that, if they, if they can swing that. Uh, although certainly the situation in the United States right now with the housing market is uh, it's very curious because, again, the Federal Reserve is keeping making these home loans uh, very inexpensive. Re- recently they've gone up a little bit. Uh, we'll see what that does to them. But then we also have these other crazy things. We have lots of investors from foreign countries buying our uh, residential real estate, not with any view towards living here, but simply as a way of getting their money out of uh, Russia, out of China. I've, I'm looking right now at a uh, at a house next door to me. It's, uh, it's sold for, like I think, $4.5 million. Nobody's been in there for two years. It just sits there. But it's, it's an, an asset that's uh, that's owned by somebody that didn't want to have his money in Russia, so that that that's what uh, that's what people are doing. But it has a distorting effect on uh, prices here. Uh, it's, what we don't see in the housing market in America right now is vast numbers of middle class and upper middle class people whose standard of living is improving because they're working harder, they're earning more money, and therefore. They are sustaining a steady, slow but steady increase in the price of real estate because of their work. There are all these very odd outside forces impinging, hedge funds buying up swaths of houses. So it's kind of it's a very tricky market right now. I don't uh, I don't pretend to understand it. <laughs> and by the way, I'll give you a, a tip so you can actually Please. go back archives uh, on the uh, private mortgage loans, we did a show called Earn, um, Learn to Earn a Higher mm-hmm. Return. That's your mm-hmm. title, Learn a Return. So if you look that one up, I think you might enjoy it. In, in, in an I hour, would. you'll know exactly what it's all about. Now, before we forget, uh, I'd like to share your website again. People know to, how to find you. Uh, so you had mentioned the best is uh, com. Perfect. And then the other way to do it is to go look at Amazon and do a scan of the various books. And uh, actually, had I done that, I would have known that you had much more than the books. I missed a number of the yes books, so uh, somehow in my <laughs> research, um, I missed some of them. You, you need to update your website to have them all on there. I mean, you really should have mentioned them. You're, you're, you're definitely being a little understated on some of that. <laughs> 
Uh, now, and you know, humble apologies for for the uh, technical problem we had and my line dropping off. But uh, and actually, I think I said about 30 seconds before I dropped off. I'm getting a message on my phone line here, and uh, I thought it was okay, and then all of a sudden it dropped off. So I guess I should take those messages seriously when I see stuff. <laughs> We've covered a lot of ground, Phil. I'm sure I've overlooked, you know, 1,500 topics, uh, including a lot of things covered in your other books. Uh, what would you add uh, that we haven't covered today that is particularly important when people look at how the affluent invest and also on untold alternative investments? I think we have really hit the basics. Yeah, you need to live within your means, save. Invest consistently over uh, long periods of time. Don't be scared of investing in equities because in the long run they tend to do uh, pretty well. Watch costs very closely. If you don't have brilliant ideas, there's nothing wrong with just buying an, an index fund. Uh, they tend to do better than most uh, professionally managed funds, and uh, and you'll be fine. Excellent. I think that, that that's also a good uh, good kind of uh, capsule of some of the key points. Uh, first of all, I obviously want to thank you for, for joining us and putting up with the interruption there. Uh, but more importantly, I would like to get you back on the show, and I'll try to make sure I'm on, you know, when I'm in the studio and we don't have a line dropping off potential problem, but I'd love to get you back on. Maybe we'll call it a Yes You Can series or something <laughs> like that. That uh, would be great. I'd love to come. Uh, you've covered some really neat stuff, and it sounds like the, the valuation concept and a number of others, the, the, the retirement, drawing down your funds, uh, you know, those are all important topics we haven't really talked about too much on this show. Uh, so I'd love to get you back on. I'm I, I, you know, definitely hoping you'll agree to do that. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Phil. Appreciate your time. Thank you. And we've covered a lot of aspects of alternative investments as uh, the affluent investor uh, talked about uh, a variety of, of uh, film demuths, uh, demuths, excuse me, mouth is getting dry, obviously, uh, philosophy and some of the uh, things he tries to incorporate his investment. But let me just take a couple minutes here and, and even a little bit late. Uh, we don't have a show stopping us uh, to, to continue. So I thought I'd take a few minutes to just summarize some of the notes that I made. Uh, and by the way, just prior to the show, I, I figured, you know, I should go to Investopedia, my favorite place for a definition or an explanation of an affluent investor. Well, surprisingly, uh, or not surprisingly, now that we've heard from Phil, uh, they define it as a subset of high net worth individuals. So as he said, uh, there isn't a, a firm level, a, a, you know, in terms of the financial industry, what's denoted as high net worth. But uh, the way they define it most commonly is a high net worth investor Investor is one that has a million dollars or more in liquid financial assets. And again, that would that would exclude your home. Now, an investor with less than a million but more than 100000 is considered to be affluent. And the upper end of that high net worth is uh, like the $5 million, which is considered to be uh, uh, very high net worth. And then $50 million and up is considered ultra high net worth, and I hope most of you will make that category. Now, from Dr. Thomas Stanley's books that we talked about again a little bit on this show, you may recall he defined a very useful classification of affluent people into two different categories. One is the ISA, the Income Statement Affluent, and then the other is the BSA, the Balance 
another message here. I'm hoping I have not dropped off again. Um, I, yeah, just for some reason, I'm getting a strange message on my screen, but it doesn't look like it's serious. So, uh, Investopedia and the financial services industry totally agree with uh, uh, Phil Demuth that uh, an, an affluent person has uh, at least 100000 in investable assets. And keep in mind, when we're talking about assets, in that case, affluent are the balance sheet affluent. Somebody that earns $100,000, $200,000, dollars a year does not necessarily qualify by that definition if they spend everything they earn, and many do. And that was the income sheet affluent who often don't really have much money left over. Now, how do I define wealthy? Well, if you ask me, I will say that's somebody that exceeds $5 million in assets, and again, liquid assets, and so that would be, in essence, the high net worth individual. But I choose that definition in the U.S. and in Western Europe. But in other less affluent countries, I would suggest using something like the top 2% of high net worth individuals or type top to 2% of uh, people on a net worth basis might be a better way to look at it. And the other is whether you define affluent as 100,000 investable assets or some combination of both those income sheet and balance sheet affluent investors, well, I suggest these are the better people to learn from when it comes to earning money, saving, and investing rather than following the crowd or doing what everyone else does. And you'll be far better off than that recently recommended Wall Street product or offering. Now, the last point should remind you of the comments that Phil DeMuth just shared about Wall Street's, Wall Street's wealth extraction machine. The recently recommended or highly touted stock or new financial product comes with a high price. Not only do you pay a commission, you're also to buying it at a price higher than it will probably be in a few months when they stop promoting it. Now, here's an interesting statistic uh, that I found, uh, as a matter of fact, this morning, developed by IBM. If you add up the fees of money managers who underperform index funds, they overcharge their investors by $300 billion per year. Look at that number another way. That's the equivalent of 300,000 people who are now at the poverty level that could have been millionaires if that money had not been skimmed off. A huge amount, so I agree with his comment. If you're listening to the show in 2013, you might be thinking of the example of that Facebook IPO a little while back, uh, initial product offering, of course. I personally don't use that as an example of wealth extraction, although certainly many investors lost money. To me, Morgan Stanley, who managed that IPO, was hired by the company to raise money by taking the company public. From the perspective of Facebook's executives and the venture capital firms who hired Morgan Stanley, they did a wonderful job. They were able to sell all of the shares that were planned and even more. And they sold it at a premium of what most people considered market price a few weeks later. So, when we convert the real estate fund I run to an REIP someday, and we do an IPO, Morgan Stanley will certainly be at the top of my list to talk to. As an investor, you should have you, you have to realize that Morgan Stanley or any other investment bank, when they're taking a company public, is not working for you. 
Just like the realtor who lists a house for sale, their job is to get the maximum price and the best terms for the seller. In that case, uh, of course, it was Facebook. In the way of full disclosure, I should add that I did not buy and still do not have any shares of Facebook. And the investment bankers and realtors, even though they're hired by the seller, may sometimes forget that their role is not just to maximize their own fees and commissions. Again, a point you heard today. I thought I'd share quotes I really liked in The Affluent Investor. Just a few here before we wrap up. To see money growing without you having to work and slave over a hot oven is glorious, which is what we refer to around here as making money work for you rather than working for your money. Now contrast that to another quote. Rich people seem to worry about money as much as anyone else. So yes, having more money means you need to manage it to keep it. And let me quote one from Charlie Munger, as he mentioned, one of his inspirations. This is a timeless rule for starting, for anybody that's starting their career, or quite frankly, anybody that works for someone else. Here's the quote. Work like you own the place. Well said. And one last one, a great definition of a simple word that we talked about today, and we use it around here often. Here's the quote. Save of all financial planning wisdom in one word. Now, final comment I'd make is I recommend reading a copy of the little book of alternative investments as well as the affluent investor, which certainly would help pull together the concepts we've been covering the past year. And in case you missed it, I just was very careful about the wording. I said I recommend reading a copy rather than saying I recommend buying a copy. You see, buying a copy and putting it on your bookshelf is action, but it won't raise uh, your wealth DNA. It may raise the perception in the eyes of people that visit your office, but it doesn't raise your wealth DNA. In our upcoming shows, we'll have experts in commodities, forex trading, and a guest to share some insights on education that financial advisors and financial planners have in alternative investors. Remember, the best way the best that I know of, at least, to increase your wealth is to tune into the show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas, and help you to be as affluent or as wealthy as you want to be. The next Wealth DNA radio show will be the second Monday of August, Monday, August 12th, 9 a.m. Arizona, same network, same time. As soon as we have the lineup of guests and topics, you'll be able to find them on WealthDNA.us. And there you'll find the archive of past shows. If you've got some comments on today's shows or questions because we didn't have uh, everything running as smoothly as we'd like to, or just questions on other topics, send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. Let me repeat that, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Happy investing.